Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. We are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And today we are serving an extra helping of culture. As always, with questions or comments, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So we live in a time of information overload. This very podcast may be a challenge for you to find the time for. News comes at us from every direction at any hour of the day or night if we allow it. That can make it challenging to find the time for the things that are important to know. We all have to become ninjas at editing our time and our attention. The flood of nonstop news from the pandemic up and down cycle to Kanye West's latest lunch outing can take up headspace that is valuable. After all, there's only so much time in a day. Of course, the danger in this age of nonstop information is, is that some of the voices we should hear, as well as some of the history we should know, gets drowned out in the echo chamber of algorithms. My guest today is Dr. Julius Garvey, the surviving son of the Honorable Marcus Garvey, an activist journalist Amy Jacques Garvey. I open with the mention of our attention and what we focus on in part because as I was researching Dr. Garvey, listening to his interviews, I gained a deeper understanding for the philosophy he speaks of, inspired by his dad. I began to process the journey of Black people in a broader context. As informed as I try to be, had my colleague and dear friend, sister, Ambassador Shabazz, not brought Dr. Garvey to my attention, the pathways, and speaking of my own here, the pathways clogged by too much information may have prevented me from paying closer attention to his clear voice. His is a worldview with roots as old as civilization and the belief that the current world order is out of balance. He was born in Jamaica in 1933. Dr. Garvey is a highly accomplished surgeon, both nationally and internationally. Recognized for his contributions to medicine, he speaks, teaches, and presents clinical research at conferences across the country. His long list of accomplishments, appointments, associations, and affiliations with various hospitals are too numerous to list here. However, I will mention one. He began his first residency in surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital of New York City, and that's where I was born. So on that connecting point, Dr. Garvey, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you for having me. But um, I, I did not deliver you, so don't, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I checked the dates, and that, that would not have been possible, but no, no. But uh, at least we have that in common. So, Dr. Garvey, first, I want to start with uh, thanking Ambassador Shabazz again for bringing you uh, to my attention uh, in terms of the possible guest here and making today possible. So, Ambassador, thank you. And also offer to you my condolences. I know that you lost your, your brother, your older brother, Marcus Garvey Jr., in 2020. So, my condolences to you, well, sir. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, Ambassador Shabazz is a dear friend. We have a lot in common in that we're we're children of, of famous people who have uh, paid the price, shall we say, for uh, their uh, standing up to the system. So um, we share a lot, and and uh, we've been together on many an occasion. We've visited Grenada, etc. So I'm I'm very um, uh, pleased that she 
brought you to my attention and me to your attention. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and, and on that note, I know, sadly, you also lost your dad at a at a very young age, and I think a very close age to when Ambassador lost uh, lost her father. So we can we'll we'll come back to that. So we kick things off on a on a light note here. I call them our short order questions. So let me um, shoot a few of those towards you and get your response. So, Dr. Garvey, what music are you listening to these days? Do you have any favorite artists that you go to often? <laughs> John Coltrane, I love Supreme, over and over and over again. Uh, John Coltrane is my favorite because he was always searching for truth, you know, and, 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 and searching for an understanding of life. So I, I feel a close affinity his music. Yeah, as long as uh, a Love Supreme is, you only have to play that a couple of times to take up the whole day, right? <laughs> but it's a brilliant recording, I agree. What are you reading? Oh, you know, I read a, a host of, of, of things. Um, I, I read several books at, at, at one time, meaning that I, 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 I read history. I, I, I read some some biography. Um, I, I read, um, shall we say, in the sciences, largely in terms of the physical sciences, the quantum physics type areas, how they apply to life. I, I read uh, spiritual literature, Buddhist literature. So... I'm a little bit of an omnivore where it comes to reading. That's what I do most of the time. By the way, I am retired. I'm no longer a practicing cardiothoracic and vascular surgeon. I've been retired for about three years. So I read you know, extensively nice. throughout the day, etc. A little bit more time for the reading, I, I would I'm imagine. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Good for you. Well earned. Uh, tell me, what's your morning routine? Uh, well, basically waking up and, and then having... A meditation experience, shall we say. I meditate um, every day. And, and I usually start uh, the day with that and in some sense end the day with that. Because I do believe that we are spiritual beings, you know, having a physical experience, shall we say. And then the mind is the go-between, between the spirit and, and the physical aspect. My meditation is what centers me. And um, I try to carry that throughout the day, the, the, the peace, the calm, the equanimity that you derive from getting in touch with yourself, which is really what meditation is. It might start out analytically, but you're really searching to find yourself. So it's about self-knowledge. And, you know, I've been at it for a long time, so I feel as if I, I know myself to a significant degree. And, and that is um, makes me happy because I think that's part of the purpose of life. Um, you're here and you have a journey and you have to know yourself and then you have to manifest that self in terms of your, your activities. I, I try to carry that meditation throughout the day. So you end up with a meditation that's a non-meditation, if you will, so it becomes a way of life. But a, a quieting of the mind, right? And, and allowing that, 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 that space for that, that peace. I, 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 I'm a struggling meditator. It's difficult for me. I know the value of it, but um, I definitely give it a shot every day. As you mentioned earlier, you know, there's so much out there. Most of it is nonsense and most of it is trying to take you out of yourself because that's the culture in which we live. It's, it's a culture of things and it's a, a culture of sensations and, and taking you out of yourself and having you involved with, you know, that um, uh, the physical sensations of life and, and how the intellect copes with that. So one needs the, the balance of the interior space. And the disconnect from wanting right exactly. because that leads to suffering exactly right you sound very much yeah. like a buddhist yourself <laughs> um so tell me um 
Favorite, I know you're, you're spending a lot of time in New York City. Is there a favorite place you like to go out to eat or any good Jamaican food that you can recommend? Um, well, you know, I haven't really eaten a, a, a lot of Jamaican food in the, recently. Of course, in the lockdown, I've been, we've been locked down for about two years per se. But I, I live on the, the north shore of, um, of Long Island in a little place called Seacliff. And, you know, there are umpteen restaurants, um, you know, everybody eats out, nobody cooks sort of thing. <laughs> a lot of my, my friends, you know, uh, they eat out five nights a week or, you know, you know, seven nights a week, if you will. So there are umpteen good restaurants. Um, um, but, you know, I tend to be a little bit vegan uh, in that sense, and I tend to um, move towards seafood. I've moved away from, from meat. Um, um, so, um, you know, basically shrimp, fish, you know, lots of that kind of thing. And mostly... Uh, vegan so i'm I'm not when i go to jamaica i i, I do get into the jerk pork and so on just and and, and the curry goat just for reminiscing purposes but it's not a <laughs> diet at this point in time <laughs> yeah no understood your favorite view if you're looking out at something what what would you most like to see where where where, where i sit um we have an upstairs and, and where I sit and, and read, etc. We we have beautiful sunsets. You know, I can see the sun going down. I have a water view of, of the Long Island Sound. So um, if it's the water view and the sunset and, and, and every every evening, you know, right now it's about, you know, five o'clock, six o'clock when the sun is going down. The colors are absolutely, absolutely beautiful. But of course, in Jamaica, it's a different thing. It's, it's more sand and, and sea. But, um, you know, um, I, I like those views because, you know, I grew up um, in a country, obviously Jamaica, where nature was everywhere, you know, even though you know, obviously we had big cities per se, but not big in comparison to New York. But, you know, there were always uh, trees, that there, there was always grass, there was always flowers. And so nature was ever present. That's what I'm really trying to say so i'm very very comfortable in nature unfortunately you know we have a garden and so on and so forth so that's my delight you know i i look out of the upstairs window where i sit and and i see you know obviously in the winter you don't see much in terms of garden but you see the trees and then you have the, the water view and then the sunsets love that man that, that late afternoon sunset is is one of my favorite times today i just love it so if you were to host an intimate dinner party and you could invite anyone past or present, mm -hmm. who might you have at that table? Well, obviously the first person that comes to mind since he's just recently passed would be Sidney Foytier. I mean, you know, he was so much of a hero to me in terms of um, going to the movies, which we all used to do, you know, um, growing up. And of course, many of us at nighttime, you know, we grew up with the cowboys and Indians and um, we identified with the cowboys and, and we thought the Indians were the bad guys. And then we, we got into the step and fetch it and, and, and so on. And, and Eddie Rochester and, you, you know, the clowning uh, black types that, that were present coming out of Hollywood. So to see Sidney Poitier in, in roles that depicted, you know, black people as human beings with an identity of their own and a personality of their own was simply, simply, simply marvelous. I mean, he had a dignity that corresponded, shall we say, I think to my dignity coming out of the Caribbean because, you know, we didn't kneel and, you know, we fought our way to freedom. And, and we always had that strength of purpose in terms of who we are. And maybe that's part also of my growing up in the Garvey household. 
but but that slap in the heat of the night i mean you know that reverberated in my mind over and over and over and over again to see him slap a white man back who slapped him was mr colbert ever in this greenhouse say last night about midnight Gillespie, yeah, you saw it. I saw it. But what are you gonna do about it? I don't know. I remember that. Because that's always my ethos. If you mess with me, I'll mess with you. You know, and I'm not backing up and so on. So, so I definitely would have Sidney Poitier at the head of the table. And next to him, of course, <laughs> would be Harry Belafonte, you know, and next to him would, would be Martin Luther King. You know, and we can kind of go on and on in, in, in that type of role. But, you know, those are my heroes. Next to that would be Malcolm X, you know, Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, you know, the, the, the strong black men who have stood up for us as a race, as a people, as a Pan-African nation, those are my heroes. And of course, you know, my dad would be there, my mom would be there, etc. Wonderful. All right, so let's jump in here. Um, I'd like to check in first. How are you? You look fantastic. How are you doing? I'm very well. You know, I'm, I'm very rested. Like I said, I've retired now for about three years. And, um, you know, I get up when I want and I, I don't wake up anymore in the middle of the night with, you know, somebody bleeding or having a problem in the hospital that I have to go into. And, you know, I'm not working late at, at night. As a matter of fact, you know, I tell people, you know, don't call me after after seven o'clock, you know, I'm into my own thing. I'm eating and I'm relaxing there. Call me during the day, but don't call me too early. So I've enjoyed the lockdown. Like I said, it has corresponded pretty much with my retirement, which, which was fortunate for me. I didn't have to go through the lockdown while I was still practicing because that would have been, you know, quite uh, uh, stressful. So I'm enjoying it. I, I mentioned that I'm, that I'm reading a lot. I'm also resting a lot. Um, you know, I go to bed when I want and then I wake up when I want. Very often it's nine o'clock or sometimes even 10 o'clock. But I do get at least eight hours rest. And uh, I'm not stressed, again, because, you know, because of my meditation. So I'm restful. I'm not stressed. And, you know, I eat well. Uh, maybe I, I, I fall down a little bit. I'm not into much of exercise at this point in time. But I've done a lot in the past. So my body is, is, is in reasonable shape. Uh, we have a pool, so I swim in the summer, unfortunately. You know, I'm not in Florida where I'd be able to swim all year round. You know, as a good Jamaican, I, I, you know, we love to swim and go to the beach every day and so on and so on and so forth. So um, I, I feel fine. That's the short answer. So you, your, your specialty was cardiothoracic and vascular surgery. You know, I, sadly, I recently lost a, a dear friend, a childhood friend, same age as me, to, uh, to a sudden heart attack. And uh, his family had a history of, of heart. His dad had cardiac arrest. His, his younger brother had also unfortunately passed a few years earlier. I went out to his house to take care of his affairs. And on his nightstand was a book called How Not to Die. And it just, oh man. But knowing what you do about the heart, and I know this is, we've got limited time here, but what do you do that takes care of your heart with the knowledge that you have about how important it is to do that? Well, 
we, we've kind of mentioned some of those things. The first thing is, is not to be stressed because, you know, when you're stressed, it releases any number of, of hormones that do certain things to your metabolism, certainly the adrenaline, noradrenaline, you know, it's like you're always on the fight or flight. Um, um, so so your, your body's always uh, reacting to stressful situations, you know. Your, your your heart is beating faster, your pulse rate raises up, and, and, and these hormones are, are flooding your, your system. So this is an emergency. So, so instead of you are being calm, you're always in a state of emergency. So that wrecks havoc on your body, so which is, it puts it into a negative state of metabolism. Everything in your body, so to speak, is going into this fight or flight response. So, um, you know, the, the, the blood is, is, is traveling, you know, to your muscles and so on, away from your, your brain, your veins are constricted in certain, that means your blood vessels are constricted in certain areas and so on. Certain of your essential organs are cut off from your normal blood supply and oxygenation. So when that uh, occurs over a long period of time, then there's a physical um, uh, response or negativity, so to speak, because but your brain and other parts of your body um, that you need are not getting the amount of blood, you know, that they require because it's all going to your musculoskeletal system or the other emergency response systems. So stress. Um, so um, one needs to de-stress or not have stress, shall we say. So stress is very, very, very um, uh, important in terms of um, uh, um, causing heart attacks and, and other uh, types of, of chronic uh, uh, illnesses, strokes, uh, et cetera, high blood pressure, and so on. The other thing, of course, is, is diet, which, which, which we have talked about. 70 to 80% of the, the diseases that we have at the present time are lifestyle diseases. You know, the diabetes, uh, the, the, the hypertension, the strokes, the cardiovascular, all of that. Um, you know, 60% of the population is obese. Um, that has negative effects in terms of health. And as you've seen with the pandemic, those, those who have had the highest mortality are those with the, the pre-existing risk factors, which are the things that I just talked about, you know, such as obesity, such as uh, a poor diet, uh, uh, eating, you know, largely um, uh, animal uh, uh, diet, and, you know, a lot of processed foods, because the way in which foods are processed, um, they have a lot of chemicals and, and strange things in them to give them shelf life that, that's longer than your own lifespan. Uh, you know, so, so some of these foods there, and they can stay on, on, on the shelf for 50, 60, 70 years without changing. So, you know, that's no good for you. So if we were to have a plant-based diet, to a large extent plant-based diet, we would get rid of uh, 70 to 80% of the diseases that we have at the present time. So uh, that's where I am in terms of my, my own uh, diet. And that's what I would recommend for, for everybody is to, to de-stress. Um, I do it, of course, with meditation. We've talked about that. Uh, get adequate uh, uh, rest, um, uh, diet, and of course, exercise. And good forms of exercise are, you know, uh, walking, uh, bike riding. Um, I don't care for jogging that much because I do believe over time it affects your joints um, because we're not really supposed to be doing that in terms of that. And it's, it's all about conforming to nature in terms of how we were made to be running constantly, especially not on asphalt or concrete. With, where a lot of people run on the roads and so on and so forth because the pounding uh, affects your joints, the cartilage in the joints, and so on and so forth. So exercises, you know, such as swimming, stretching, uh, um, uh, walking, and so on and so forth. So 
again, you know, um, de-stress uh, plant-based uh, uh, diet um, um, uh, exercise. Um, that's that's pretty much it. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic summary. And um, coming from you, it has, you know, a great deal of credibility. So I, I hope our audience takes note. I'm certainly taking note of um, of your advice there. So I'm curious where you get your your news. You know, we've gone through in the last, you know, 24 months, say, given the pandemic and the election and all that went on, we've seen a lot. And the number of hate groups are read recently quadrupled since Barack Obama was in office. The election was the largest turnout in history, yet it was, you know, completely divided. What do you think is going on here, Dr. Garvey? What are, what are we seeing? Well, I, I, I think you, you are seeing that the division coming to the fore. You know, America um, has never faced its original sin uh, as a problem. Um, it has always tried to uh, avoid it, um, even though there was a, a civil war relative to, to slavery, but there was no real reconstruction. Uh, as you know, there was no 40 acres and a mule. There was no uh, restitution for, you know, 250 years of, 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 of of labor, of, of free labor and punishment and all the injustice. Um, you know, now we are beginning to talk about reparations. And, you know, now I, th- I think with social media, etc., you know, a lot is coming to the fore in, in terms of the understanding of, of people. Um, there's more understanding of the horrors of, of slavery. There's more understanding of, you know, um, um, what was done in, in World War II or, or what happened in the Korean War or, you know, what happened in, in Iraq, what has happened in Afghanistan. So, you know, the, the, the system is, itself is being seen to be, you know, not as, as wonderful as it's made out uh, to be. So there's a certain amount of desire, I think, again, to, to want to change the system. And and if you look, you'll see that this is cyclical, I think. Um, if, if you go all the way back um, uh, to, my, to my dad's time, uh, First World War in 1914-18, you know, he came to the country, this country, you know, um, U.S. in 1916. Um, there were all of these changes in terms of um, African-Americans moving from the south to the north, occupying the margins of, of the Industrial Revolution, shall, shall we say, and, and going abroad and, and fighting um, on, the, on the side of the Allies, if you will, the U.S., fighting for democracy, where they had been subjected to, to slavery and the sharecropping and the cotton industry and so on and so forth in the south. So, so that created um, uh, a scenario for change, and and, and that's when the, the Garvey movement or the United ACL came to the fore because it was solving the problems up at that time of the African American or the African worldwide. And then if you fast forward, you know, another 30 or so years with another generation, um, again, coming in after World War II, and you, you get up to the 60s. So, so you have the 20s, 30s, and then you get the generation going up to the 60s. And then you have the civil rights, and you have Malcolm X, and you have Martin Luther King, um, you know, leading that same um, desire of, of, for justice and, and the, the changes that were wrought with World War II. Again, so many Africans, both African Americans, Africans from Africa and the Caribbean, fighting on the side of the Allies, being exposed to these different changes, again, fighting for democracy, coming back and bringing this back, you know, generating 
this desire uh, uh, for change. And then you go to the 90s again with the same sort of thing was happening with another generation. Now we're in the 20s and the same thing is happening, Black Lives Matter, etc. So you you have these opposing forces, um, the, the, the forces over time that, that have enslaved us, have colonized us, have de dehumanized us, that have become uh, systemic in terms of the laws that, that have been propagated against us, but that preventing us from equity in terms of of being full citizens here in the United States of America, the injustice, our incarceration rate, and you can go on and on with that, as opposed to that, those forces that want, you know, true freedom, true equity, and, and true justice, social justice and equity in terms of, of a full share of the citizenship of the country. So, so that is now rubbing against each other again. And that's why you had January the 6th, that's why you're having what you just uh, described, and, and on, on our side, shall we say, we're talking about Black Lives Matter and all that that means. And, and I think you'll find that Garveyism, again, is, is sort of on the rise in terms of it being an expression of who we are as an African people, our desire for liberty and a true democracy and, and, and sustainable development over time and prosperity. So and, um, I, I think this is simply uh, uh, a cycle that, that comes every, every one or two generations whereby uh, liberty is fighting against incarceration and dehumanization, shall we say. You know, one of the things that, that occurred to me as I uh, researched um, your dad and listened to some of your lectures was this idea that, you know, as Black Americans, I think, and I'm speaking very generally here, that we tend to define ourselves by slavery, right? And what I got from your Afrocentric worldview was a much broader vision of certainly if you go back to the beginning of time and you talk about what cultures were, you know, were around at the beginning of time, you know, African culture was there at the beginning. And to see and think of ourselves in that context, in a world vision, I, I think while slavery is important to recognize, of course, and we still haven't dealt with that, I think the broad vision is important that you don't define yourself by that period of time. Would you concurs? Am I on to your thinking no, there? Yeah, absolutely. All right. You know, because what slavery did was that it disconnected us from ourselves in terms of our identity and, and our culture and, and destroyed our history and our, our perverted the telling of our history and our story as if to say our enslavement was something beneficial to us, which is turning everything upside down because the truth of, of history um, basically, is that world history is African history because you know humanity began uh, uh, in Africa. I, I think every anthropologist or archaeologist or whatever in the world, you know, agrees to that. And um, the images that have been created of what um, Homo sapiens would have looked like, you know, two hundred thousand years ago, is obviously as an African person like me and, and like and like you and, and and this is accepted now by everybody in, in terms of uh, a scientific uh, truth so so uh, that we are the original homo sapiens um we are the fathers and mothers of, of all the other so-called races on planet earth and um being that is so um we did not migrate out of africa uh, until about 40,000 years ago. All human beings were on the continent of Africa for, you know, 100,000 years or so, and we migrated outward 
and we populated the world. So we populated the world and then there was differentiation in terms of um, because of geography and because of climate over time, um, there was different phenotypical manifestations of what it means to, to be human. And along with that, again, because of, of geography, what the environment allowed you to do, there is also different cultural manifestations over time. But we're all one human human set of human beings. We're all one one race. And 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 this is what we understand. And this is what you know has been clouded over, shall we say, with the propaganda that um that somehow we're subhuman. You know, and the other aspect of that is obviously um, we are the purveyors of civilization because civilization started in Africa and they've um, tried their best to, to turn Kemet into some kind of civilization that came from white people when there were no white people in, in Africa at that point in time. And um, so, you know, the original civilization, like, for example, Kemet itself has an oral uh, history that goes back 40,000 years in terms of who we are as a people coming before written history. The written history goes back about 4,000 years, 4,000 uh, BC. So that is our history in terms in terms of, of Kemet, in terms of, of, of um, Akush, in terms of Punt, in, in terms of what is modern day uh, Sudan or what is modern day Ethiopia. Those are all our civilizations over time before there was any such thing as, as Europe. Europe was in the Ice Age, before there was anything such as Greece or Greek, Greece or, or Rome. Those people came to, to, to Africa to learn, all of them, Pythagoras and, 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 and Plato and Socrates and, and so on. All of those white young people came to Africa to learn. That's our history, the original people, the original civilizations. And that has been destroyed and distorted over time as an excuse for slavery, uh, which was, you know, a, an economic um, uh, adventure and an economic expression of doctrines of white supremacy. Uh, uh, again, you know, we, we, we civilized the Greeks, we civilized the, the, the Romans, and then later on, uh, as part of the Moors, um, um, uh, let's say from the, the 7th century onwards, we again civilized uh, uh, Europe um, with, with the Arabs uh, until 1492 when the Moors were, were, were kicked out of uh, Europe. So our history is long and deep and profound, and it's really world history because it existed before anybody else's history. So when you're talking about history, you have to talk, you have to start with African history, and then you have to see what deviated from African history. And I, I want to come back to that in a moment because um, we've we've heard a lot lately about the term critical race theory, and, and uh, you know it's been politically weaponized, you know, as a term when we're really talking about history. You know, we call it critical race, but it's history. What really happened? But I want to come back to that because there's, there's a quote of yours that I want to read from in a few minutes that I that I, and I'll bring Ambassador Shabazz in on that part of the discussion. But before we get to that, there's another quote I have of you um, speaking in 2019. And you say, quote, even though people of color have achieved more political and social autonomy, we're still deprived of equal economic opportunities in terms of being able to develop our own communities. Blacks are still at the bottom of the ladder, so to speak, in the U.S. hierarchy, as well as in the social and economic order. The economic order actually should be placed first as it determines one's social order in the U.S., a country that professes to be an economic democracy, end quote. So if the economic 
order should actually be placed first and black people, assuming then black people would then move up the economic ladder. What mechanism would you say we have available to us to accomplish that? Is that reparations? What are you thinking? <laughs> you know, um, again, if you go back to, to, to my dad and um, the 20s and, and uh, early on in the late, the late teens, you could see a, exactly the model, and, and this was what scared a, a lot of people. Um, um, they, they had the Negro Factories Corporation, um, the, the uh, African Communities League as the economic arm of the organization, Universal Negro Improvement Association. And, you know, they, they had umpteen businesses uh, uh, in Harlem, all the way from, you know, uh, uh, laundromats, grocery stores, uh, uh, restaurants, moving companies, um, real, real estate, uh, publishing companies. Newspaper, doll shop. 75,000 contributors and so on and so forth, employing more than a thousand people in Harlem. And, and th this was out of our own economy in terms of employing ourselves. And then you look at, at, at some of the major uh, projects, which would be, let's say, the Black Star Line, which was, um, how should I say, I'm not the right term there, but you know, that they, they had shares out there, which they sold for $5 a share. They, they got a million dollars within a year uh, to buy the ships that they ended up buying, which uh, was ending up as, as four ships. So there is, you know, funds within the Black community to do what we want to do, or what we, you know, what we determine uh, to do, you know, um, you know, people like to tell you that um, the Black American economy is what is it, a, a trillion dollar economy or something like that. Now, you know, granted, a lot of that is salary, but a lot of it that what we do with that is 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 um, you know waste our money on bling and 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 so many other unnecessary things. So if we were to put our money into constructive efforts like what Marcus Garvey did at that point in time um, for community, and, and don't forget, those were all social enterprises, um, the, the Black Star Line, et cetera. Uh, those were all social enterprises whereby the community would buy the shares and then, of course, reap the, the, the profit. And, and, um, and, and the profits were, were then put back into the business and, and to do the, what was necessary for the community. In other words, they had credit unions and, and they had kind of welfare programs and, and whatever else was needed in terms of, of education for a university and so on and so forth. So we can generate our own communities out of you know, our resources, um, both our financial resources, our physical resources and our mental resources. And that goes back to Tuskegee. You know, we, we need to learn the mechanics of, of the, the industrial and post-industrial uh, uh, age. And, 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 and that was what was being, was being taught. And, you know, and, and that's what my dad read up from slavery book at the Washington. And that's what he wanted to duplicate in Jamaica and so on. And, and in some sense, that's what he duplicated. Uh, you know, but with the, uh, the caveat that um, we, we, it wasn't just a matter of individual capitalism, but it was social enterprises. Because if you had a bunch of rich individuals, which is what has happened, you know, we have a bunch of black uh, rich individuals in their different areas, whether it's in sports or the art or in, in other enterprises. But the community is not developing out of that wealth. 
because that wealth is being spent elsewhere. So, so here's the difference from Booker T in that sense was that these needed to be community enterprises so that the profits and the benefits then would go to the community. So this was the beginning of social social entrepreneurship. Other people also have it, but Marcus Garvey did this 100 years ago. Yeah, you know, we've, we've talked about this often on this show, you know, because we are, you know, I'm, I come out of the, the restaurant industry and uh, second generation. My dad had uh, a place in Manhattan. He opened in 73. And I've written about how um, I use the example of a prominent, say, a LeBron James who might spend his money at uh, Nobu, a very, you know, fancy sushi restaurant at the expense of overlooking the local black owned restaurant in the neighborhood. And that guy suffers while, you know, the you know, the Carmelo Anthony's dropped, you know, $5,000 at the steakhouse in Miami drinking expensive wine. The guy, you know, over in Overtown with the place that's been there for a long time doesn't see that kind of revenue. And it's, and it's hurtful. And I think that desegregation, while uh, you know, it's cer- certainly a, a worthy effort in the civil rights movement. Desegregation destabilized black neighborhoods and black businesses. You know, uh, I wouldn't say so much it was desegregation, but it, it was it, the desire for integration, meaning uh, essentially assimilation. This was one of the problems, and my father said this in, in terms of liberating your mind from mental slavery, because while others may help you free the body, none but yourself can can free the mind and and france fanon called that you know black skin white mass where you're disconnected from yourself and you want to be with the one who has oppressed you it's a reaction i'm going to say it's a natural reaction but in some sense it is a natural reaction the person who enslaved you and deprived you for everything and you see him having everything and you say i want what he has so when the enslavement period is over that's where you gravitate because he has got the goodies and you want to share those goodies. So so that was what came out of the desegregation movement, the desire to want to sit at the table, you know, with, with, with the previous enslaver or, or colonizer. Now, what my dad brought to the table was independence. I see some people call it separation, but, but that's when you allow people um, to play with your minds in terms of how they define, um, define uh, the situation. And, you know, they define it in the way in which they want to define it. But if you define it from the perspective of your validity as a human being over time, you know, with your culture and your history, you want your own freedom and you want to be able to define your own destiny. You don't necessarily want to go and sit at somebody else's table, you know, and eat their food. You want to be able to plant your food you know, cook your food and eat your food at your table. That's independence. Uh, you see, that's not separation, that's independence. And, you know, you don't care necessarily who is next door, um, but you want your, your own table with your own uh, food and with your own family that you're comfortable with, you see. But a lot of people um, describe that, you know, you know, as, as separation. It has nothing to do with separation. Um, it, it's just about manifesting who, who you are in the different, you know, areas uh, of, of daily of daily living. And there's no reason why, why you should be like this other person and like their culture, because their culture is not def- definitive of human culture. <laughs> we can have another discussion about that, but uh, a true understanding of who and what humanity is. I maintain that African humanism is the essence of what humanity is, whereas in terms of the, the Eurocentric, a definition. It, it really has to do with scientific materialism, where they've deviated from the norm of what a human is 
and we're really human, being treated like human animals, catering to, to our senses and, and using the intelligence to scheme relative to our sensory comfort or relative to the individual accumulation of wealth at the expense of others and so on and so forth. We can go through all sociology and political sociology and philosophy, but there's a difference in terms of, you know, what over time we have considered to be in the norm. And I say we as African people in, in terms of our cultures and our traditions. Brilliant. And I'm going to, I'm going to dive into, I'm going to bring Ambassador Shabazz in at this point in the conversation. And, and, you know, Dr. Garvey, what, um, you know, your father, the two of the most prominent things that I saw that he stood for was one self-reliance and two, he believed that disunity was the greatest threat to, you know, the Negro, uh, is, uh, the term that he used at the time. And, um, I wanted to read, cause you just touched on that, that famous quote that uh, we all know from the Bob Marley song. But uh, that uh, is actually your, your dad's quote. And I'm going to read something that you said on Afro Global Television in 2020 and then get it, some of what you've already touched on. But I, I just think it encompasses so much. And then I'd, I'd like to turn it back over to the two of you. And, and as we dive a little bit deeper into this part of the show. So you said, quote, History has been rewritten so that we have been written out of history and our understanding of ourselves has been transformed. We've been miseducated by the people that conquered us and put their own systems in place so that we no longer have the systems that allow us to grow up true to our traditions and ourselves. This is what is still keeping us down. My father called it mental slavery. None but ourselves can free the mind. We have a dependency syndrome. European dominance and our inferiority. We need a personal transformation, a transformation of consciousness. We have to liberate our minds knowing who we are, knowing who we were, knowing what we can be. We have to liberate our minds. It's needed for us. It's needed for the whole world because the world is lopsided with the idea that the European perspective is a global perspective. It is not a global perspective. It's simply a European perspective, and it's very selfish, very one-sided. It seeks to enrich Europeans at the expense of the rest of the world. And obviously, that's a recipe for continued conflict. Whereas the world needs balance, and the world needs love. End quote. So that sounds like pretty critical theory to me. Two of you, what what um, unpack that in any way that uh, that you see fit? <laughs> well, it, it, uh, you know, I think it, it, the statement more or less stands for, for itself. Um, you know, obviously uh, we can do a deeper dive. Uh, and, you know, we can go back to what we talked about earlier on the the extent of of, of uh, civilization on the African continent, and that is based on an African humanism, which which you 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 can identify. Um, in the concept of Ma'at, when you go back to, to Kemet, and you can identify, you know, as Ubuntu in the Bantu civilizations and so on. Uh, when you can look at the Songhai and, and, and you can look at the Yoruba and you can look at the Akan and they all have um, the, the Dogon, they, they all have this, this humanism um, um, as part of their cultural expression. This is our essence, you know, and, but w w what has happened is that the West has gone away from that and the West I'm talking about is Europe, um, m meaning that, you know, their definition of, of God was, was external to man. And, and so when when that didn't satisfy them in terms of of their understanding of the world, 
they threw that out and went wholeheartedly into into scientific materialism because that gave them an understanding of their surroundings and things and and that was also their understanding of themselves so that their spirituality was also thrown out because it was indeed initially externalized in in that god was someone out there who who had created everything and, and he was up there uh, somewhere, but but he was not uh, 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 imminent. He was transcendent. Where, whereas, if you look at the African systems, you know our God is both imminent and transcendent. He didn't create us and walk away. Um, he created us. Uh, he's with us. He transforms, changes us. He transforms us, and and you know, and it's a cyclical situation of continuous creativity, and and we are in harmony with that, and that's what Maat means, and so on, and and Ubuntu, because you. Know, I am because you are, and you are because I am, and that's how we are. Uh, we, you know, we are all part of this oneness. So our understanding of our humanity is a oneness with each other and a oneness with nature, where, whereas the, the, the European understanding is very dualistic in terms of self and other, and it's, it's schizophrenic, and it's always two, two minds, or this mind that, you know, I and you, or me and you, versus you or self versus other, and that's the basis of everything. There's individualism, and, and, and then there's competition for whatever the resources are out there. And, you know, we have certain values, but then again, you know, those values can be put aside in dire moments when we need to get whatever it is that we need to get. So that's how you can go out there and kill other human beings that, like yourself, um, because you know, your, your ideology is basically individualistic as opposed to being humanistic and, and as opposed to being universalist. So, you know, there, there's a tremendous difference between, you know, African understanding and the European understanding. And I think they've gone in a different direction and they're, they're now um, in, in, in a cubbyhole where they can't get out of it. And that's why you have all of the nonsense that we have in terms of the use and abuse of drugs. You have all of this lack of identity in terms of male and, and, and female, you, you have pornography, you know, everything, pederastry, and so on and so forth. So, you know, and there are no values anymore, no morals anymore. You can do whatever you want to do. Well, that's not true. If you look all around you at, at, at nature, I mean, you, you can't plant an, an, an oak um, seed and get a rose. An oak seed has to give you an oak tree. And a human being is a human being. I mean, it's, it's defined by, by nature, you know, but we define it ourselves and think that we're smarter than nature. And I say we know I'm, I'm talking about the Eurocentric perspective because we're surrounded by, uh, you know, unfortunately at the present time and it has to change because it's going nowhere. It's destroying the planet and it's destroying, you know, um, you know, so many species, both plant, animal species, human beings, etc. So, you know, there's a high kill rate out there and at some point in time, it's just going to go all the way, you know, uh, down and we'll leave it over to the cockroaches and the viruses and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, I'm just digesting everything that has been discussed thus far and I'm thinking of the synergy and the origin that is so familiar for me. And I wonder how much of it is just, is the innate of the, in terms of the gene pool, and I meant the historic gene pool, 
back to the source of the root of Africa gene pool that far back and or the practices that I am born of directly. You know, the when Dr. Garvey and I get to speak, I really feel an automatic synergy. And my father didn't get to be in my life long, but somehow or another, whatever that seed was, whatever that nature was, the aunts and uncles in and around who were influenced by their parents who were stewards in the Marcus Garvey movement, I listen to him and I know myself. I hear myself. I know my origins. So even the conversations about meditation, one doesn't talk about the general population, especially when it comes to Black America, that we have to wait till Sunday to pray, you know, as opposed to being part of the metaphysical all day, the universalism, the oneness is a part of who you are all day. And that the context of spirituality is often relegated to a mortal host rather than that which we are inherently a part of an extension all the while. So just thank you, Dr. Garvey, for the articulation that unites spirituality, intellect, and purpose, and that you can actually, if you pause for a while, marry them all, engage them all, and identify that which we are relegated to do or born to do all day. So um, one of the things that I wondered during 2020, it was new for a new generation. We're three generations since the civil rights movement. And so there was a bit of a disconnect. But what was understood inherently by young people in the street is that this cannot be. They put everything on the line. They put catching COVID on the line by being in the street. Some did not go to school that fall. They didn't resume because they were insistent on one thing or the other. In their body's marrow, while the outcry was Black Lives Matter. What I knew is that they never knew who Marcus Garvey was and that they didn't have to start from scratch, that they could actually have reached back and had a guideline, you know, a template, an understanding of fulfilled efforts, because I'm here generations later as an influenced person by the Garvey Clarities um, informed. So what language would you use today so that you speaking to your grandson, who is 23, and his peers, would you link Black Lives Matter so that they understand the Universal Negro Improvement Association and that they don't have to start from scratch, that here are the tenants? What was the membership? How many People don't even realize how many members there were, how many enterprises there were. We don't realize our numbers. Uh, yeah, um, you know, quite true. Um, you know, I don't know that I, I have a, the language to speak to the younger generation. Because, um, you know, the, the, the younger generation at, at this point in time, they are wedded to their, um, their apps and so on and their cell phones and, and they have short attention spans and it ha- you know, what they, they listen to or what they watch has to be put in a certain way that they digest it. So um, I, I don't know that, that I have that uh, capacity to reach them. But, you know, I, I do believe that truth and justice will out and everybody ends up seeking truth. Um, and that's what, what is important is, is to be able to speak the truth because people also recognize sincerity. So if you've been there, then you can talk about where you've been and, and someone will listen. And I think those who listen will have reached a, a certain critical point in their own lives where they're asking questions. And they're not getting their answers from from their their cell phones or their their devices, and you know, with all the the Disney type um, you know artifacts uh, on on the cell phone. So uh, you know, I think that is the environment that has to be created. And you know, from my perspective, I don't think it has been created. I, I think we're 
we, we need to create that. And I know that's part of what you're doing, Ambassador Shabazz, and we, we need to be able to, to work on that to create these spaces where young people can get to interact with, you know, my generation or even the generation after me, so to speak, because I'm separated by about two or three generations from the young people. But we, we, we need that environment, uh, you know, which um, goes beyond the concept, as you know, which is, is very um, prevalent in terms of our Western environment that, you know, old people don't matter, so to speak. Once you're over 30, you're kind of at it, you know. Especially if you can't manipulate the, the, the IT, then they say, oh, you know, it's a fuddy-duddy or whatever it is. And that's what's spread around the world. But and you, you and I come from a tradition where the elders carry the wisdom. The young people don't necessarily know that. So, so we, 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 we have to create that sort of environment because, you know, it's a matter of experience. It's a matter of living through all of this. It's a matter of knowing things, digesting them, that's throwing true. out what, what that didn't suit you and so on and so forth. And this is what needs to be passed down so each generation doesn't start from scratch, you know, trying to figure out uh, the situ situation that they're living in, when the situation that they're living in is really a replica of the situation from 500 years ago or even a thousand years ago. So they need to understand that. So, you know, almost at birth, so to speak, they have the wisdom to be able to deal with the environment. They're not starting from scratch and making the mistakes and trusting those that they shouldn't trust. You know, and, and, and trying to imitate those again that, that, that they shouldn't imitate. I have a question. So there are two books I want to ask uh, for the audience and for young people. One, the book that you would say best prepares us to understand your father and his intention. And two, who else should we read or know? What would be, when you say you enjoy reading, what would take people down the path, young people, maturer people, into really understanding? You know, Rupert Lewis has been the major uh, uh, historian writing about, you know, my dad, and he has uh, uh, several books. Apart from Rupert, Adam Ewing has a great book, The Age of Garvey. You know, so many people um, because of their poor education, even though they have PhDs and so on and so forth, don't really understand um, the, the, the width and the depth of the Garvey movement. But, but Adam Ewing, who wrote um, um, this book um, a few years ago, The Age of Garvey, how a Jamaican activist created a mass movement and changed global black politics. And I, I think this is of extreme, extreme importance in understanding uh, Garveyism. Then, of course, um, in terms of the whole history of who we are as a people, uh, I think one of the ones that, that um, is of significance, um, of recent origin, is Born in Blackness. And, and um, you should read that one. And, and, and it's really... Um, changing the historical narrative from the Eurocentric perspective that everything started with them. And so, you know, and, and showing that whole, whole modern uh, uh, world history, etc., from 1471 to the Second World War, that Africans and, um, and Africa was central to the making of history during that period. And of course, we know different also previous to that, but it, but it shows the centrality of Africa in, in history. So that's Born in Blackness by Howard French. To bring us up to date in terms of America, what has been happening here is the 1619 Project, which, which you know, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. So Dr. Garvey, Ambassador, here we are. It's 2000, 
2022, we're in an age where a Kim Kardashian has 300 million followers and someone maybe whose voice we should hear a little bit more of is not anywhere near that level. Who would you say are the most important black leaders um, in the world today or even, you know, in the United States? Would you put Kamala Harris on that list? Who Who is there that you are paying attention to that you think is is worth um, mentioning in answer to this question. So, so do you mean that in terms of position and, and post, or do you mean that in terms of influence? Well, that's that's the line that I think it's a little blurry, right? Because now there's the term influencers, and right, Hollywood has always been able to put certain people. You mentioned Sidney Poitier. I mean, he's been a big influence. Obviously, he's never been a politician, but he had a big influence in his dignity, and you know, certainly, um, um, you know, a big influence on folks. But I'm talking mainly here about someone that could that could impact politics um, in a way that uh, you know can get some some things done that we feel you know, might, uh, might not be happening now. But Dr. Garvey, I'm curious, is who, who would be on that list for you? Who do you think is the brightest, best leader that we have? I don't think there's anyone. I don't see anyone on the political scene that, that represents us in terms of, of being able to transform the system or speak up to the system or represent us uh, properly. I, I don't see anyone. You mentioned Kamala Harris, but she hasn't had a chance. She's in the shadows of the president. Uh, and I think the way they have been using her is to her disadvantage. Um, it, you, you, you know, the way they're sending her to different places, to the border and so on, they're putting her in, in hot spots where um, all she's doing is drawing fire. So I, I don't, um, she's not in a position of, of, of demonstrating uh, leadership. I think she has the possibility and characteristics based on, you know, her past history, education, upbringing and so on. But um, I don't believe the administration, the administration is using her properly. On the other hand, you know, in, talk, in, in terms of influencers, you know, there are people like, you know, uh, Maulana Karenga, you know, Malefia Sante, Anthony Browder, and so on. Th th those are, you know, some of my, my, my idols, if you will, or people that I, I talk to uh, and who have a similar ideology, shall we say, to, to myself. Linda James Myers and, and so on, and, uh, you know, Joyce King in terms of uh, African education. But, you know, that's, you might say, uh, an inner circle of people who are like-minded and, and, and are making contributions in their own way. Ambassador? No, I would defer to Dr. Garvey on this because I, too, am looking for who that is and how it's represented. Sometimes it's a quiet force and some need to be able to step up. I think the last four years really did make people shy based on the rise of violations and human threat. And so I come from a time when um, principle made people walk no matter the threat. So today I think it intimidates it, it and justifiably, nobody wants to leave their family behind. You know, my generation witnessed casualties of some of those acts, meaning families like mine or Dr. Garvey's, would be without that person in our lives forever. So you have to ask whomever is going to step up, what are they willing to endure? What are they, what risks to their well-being? And that's a big ask. I think by now, for all of the 
leaders and examples that we've had in the in the past that we shouldn't be starting from scratch and that we should use some of the templates of instruction and guidance that it already precedes. That's why I ask, do, do these young people even know? They don't know my father and that's more recent, right? They kind of like use a slogan and think that that's emblematic of something. And with Dr. Garvey, whom I think is root significant in the Western hemisphere for us to know that we shouldn't be starting from scratch. We need to go back and do some 101 on who Marcus Garvey is and that he had a wife that was very significant in that balance, that there are children and grandchildren. And how many members, Dr. Garvey, would you say there were of the UNIA during your father's lifetime? Between six and, and, and I've heard of up, up to about 15, well, I would say between six and, and 10 million. Can you imagine that membership, six million and upwards of Black people or those of African descent around the globe representing a union, a unity? We don't even know numbers like that. We don't even turn out to vote when we have the opportunity to vote. And coming from New York myself, I know that Harlem is filled with all of the social enterprises during the Renaissance period. We don't even know that. We think of the new Harlem as an invasion of people who don't look like Harlem without any regard to the fact that Harlem once carried all of the same esteem. And so I think there's some maybe through what we continue to do through the exoneration process that we don't stop on March 2nd, because there's a presidential pardon campaign now to honor the Honorable uh, Marcus Garvey so that there's, and I'll have Dr. Garvey speak to it, but we shouldn't stop after the 100,000 signatures. We really need to continue. We don't put a lid on it. What does March look like? What does April look like? How does August around his birthday show up? What is the 365-day approach to learning who we are? And you're speaking of justice for Garvey. So Dr. Garvey, you're welcome to say a couple of words about that. We're winding down, but I, I want to get a few more questions in, but I certainly wanted to hear from you on the uh, justice for Garvey campaign. Uh, yes, um, um, we have, are organizing or have organized a drive um, uh, for a petition to President Biden. We need 100,000 uh, signatures on that petition during this month of February. Uh, the drive started on, on February the 1st. And people can go to to the website justiceforgarvey.org, justice the number four garvey.org, and they they can hit on the link for the petition. It's there, and then they'll get down our directions uh, as to to what to do to contact the president, and then they'll be asked uh, some personal information like the you know name and address, and they don't have to be a citizen, and uh, they can be anywhere in the world, and and. Um, um, you know, any type of person, shall we say. And uh, um, then uh, it's a request of them, what is it that they want? Uh, what would they like to do? And, and they need to uh, put down their exonerate Marcus Garvey. So it's a petition to President Biden to exonerate Marcus Garvey. And um, his response to that should be at least, um, you know, a posthumous uh, pardon, which is within his uh, power to do with a simple stroke of a pen. So we need 100,000 signatures. Um, uh, in the month of February, it started February the 1st, and 100,000 is the threshold. Above that, he has to respond one way or another, yay or nay. Below that, he doesn't have to respond. So it's very important that we get a minimum of 100,000 signatures. Just to and when you think about 6 million uh, registered members in 1920, 
you think we can at least get 100,000 signatures in 2022. And and for those who don't know that are listening, that the, the the conviction was based on a at best a trumped up mail fraud charge that was pursued by J. Edgar Hoover when he first joined the FBI. And we all know his racist past uh, actually got commuted by President Coolidge, but it required that your dad uh, be deported to Jamaica. So we're not even really talking about a real crime here. So it just seems that uh, enough is enough already. So folks out there, let's uh, let's sign that petition. Dr. Garvey, before we let you go, a couple of, um, you know, a, a, on a little bit more of a light note, but still, I think um, something that I'm curious to, to, to get your take on is Black History Month a worthy endeavor? Well, I, I think it should be African Heritage Month, and then I think it should be uh, year-round, not just a month. As you know, it started out with a week, and then it's a month now, and we need to teach our kids our African uh, uh, history uh, every every day of, of the week and every month uh, of the year. It, it's a year-round job for us as, as, as elders, as, as, as seniors, as people who, who create schools, who create systems, of create communities, uh, and that's where we're losing it with our youngsters. We're losing their minds. Their minds are being shaped by somebody else. So then they, they cannot be like us or us in terms of our traditions because we're not teaching them. And we need to do that uh, on a year-round basis, you know, 24-7, uh, 52, you know, weeks of the year, uh, etc. Uh, so um, I'm all for African Heritage Year. But that's the next step. <laughs> Absolutely. African Heritage Month is how I refer to it, but African Heritage Year, <laughs> it's, it's, it's how I walk. <laughs> it's how I move. Uh, it's how you roll. <laughs> so, Dr. Garvey, as we close, I wanted to just um, read a, a, one of the quotes of your dad's that I, that I really love and uh, just, you know, get you to, to comment on it. And uh, we'll, we'll go out on this. But your father said, progress is the attraction that moves humanity. That just strikes me. And I, I mean, that's hopeful and optimistic. What's what's your feeling about yeah, that? I mean, I, another way to, to look at it is, you know, build a better mousetrap and, and everybody will come will come to you. And, and that, that's what he was all about. He was saying, you know, don't waste time complaining or whatever it is or pointing the finger, you know, build, build your own mousetrap, build your own community, build your own industries, you know, build your own corporation, you know, build your own nation, um, if, you know, and and, and if people don't want to come, that's their business, you know. But but if you build it, they will come, um, you know. And if you build it, and, and he was also talking about excellence in terms of that. If you say so, it's, it's not just progress in terms of something, but in terms of creativity of us as, as humans, and, and then also the excellence of what what we create. And when we do that, then everybody has to respect you. Uh, they can't do better than that. So you do the best that you can with what you have, and nobody can do better than that. <laughs> Build a better mousetrap. I'll, I'll use that in the restaurant business too. <laughs> the guy down the street has the better mousetrap. He's got more business. <laughs> Dr. Julius Garvey, thank you so much, sir, for joining us today. Many more warm sunsets for you and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. 
So sliding into our segment, How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz, and I know that uh, I brought you in a little early in that conversation with Dr. Julius Garvey, but uh, I really felt that it was uh, it was appropriate. I know you have a long relationship there and, uh, you know, your alignment is uh, is pretty profound, but uh, what a what a fantastic uh, time I had talking to him. What a deep intellectual Great thinker. Just amazing. I mean, thank you so much for seeing the value in him being on right now, you know, as in one of the elders that are around us. And we we don't even realize the stories that are chronicled and the roadmap, as I referenced, the stepping stones and the the lesson plans that are right here ready for us to um, utilize so that we are not always in a recovery mode. Um, how do we advance forward, right? We don't have to stop and start all the time. And that's a kind of fatiguing for the elder. So sometimes they retreat because they're not really being heard. And when you speak to enough people from different parts of the, the United States and the Caribbean, notwithstanding Africa of a certain age, they all will talk about how their parent or grandparent had Garvey's picture up on the mantle. Right. But it had to be quieted because of the innuendos and the associations and the the positions that it put us in right here. If you know, if you want to keep your job, I mean, you know, theologies, ideologies, methodologies always had to be tame so as to make sure you had kept your jobs and and things like that. And I listening to him with you and the opportunity to exchange and you asking questions that really delve into his life, his just journey as a human being, as a man, and him being able to share the spiritual component and not just the the tagline that is often associated to his dad or the weaponizing of his dad. Um, but I think people do that in order to keep us, you know, separate. And he always talked about unity. Mm-hmm. You know, I also wanted to touch on the obvious through line, the DNA um, that I, you know, that we got to witness um, and him having lost his dad as you did at such a young age. But when I look at the both of you, there's so much of the brilliance of both of your parents who, you know, brilliant in their own right. But you see that in each of you, even though only a very short period of your life was actually spent in their physical presence. Well, and the continuity is also by the surviving parent. Right. So the balls weren't dropped. And and in each of our cases, we knew our fathers not from the public persona. We had the potency of who they were at home, the whole man. And so I think that's also very key. Often people will present to me who they think my father is based on the caption and or who Marcus Garvey was to his children. And you want to say, no, there's so much more dimension. So when you listen to someone like Dr. Garvey or meet his daughter, who's just as eloquent, just as traveled, just as thoughtful, just as con- has just as much conviction, the next generation. You don't know her face either. Most people don't know Dr. Garvey's face, but he is fully involved with the AU, that's 54 African countries. He goes there a lot. He shares. So why is it that we are still, you know, um, divided here, trying to choose sides? In order to mm-hmm. proclaim your Africanness does not mean you have to do it exclusive to anything else that you do. So holding on to that which is African is not radical, it's an existence. It's part of your yes. So why do we forfeit our yes in order to acquiesce and be a part of something that isn't who you are? I don't know what that is. And that it doesn't exclude or preclude multiple engagement 
Um, but it's an interesting lesson. And then when I'm around Dr. Garvey, I have an exhale because I know the, the being. I mean, when we first met, I actually collapsed on him. I'm a little taller and I collapsed on him. I just cried. I couldn't, I couldn't even find the words just because of, of how much uh, my grandfather was a chapter president of the, of the UNIA in each of their cities. And they were burnt out and run out just like the stories we're learning. And my father was the fourth born in Omaha, but the family didn't live in Omaha long because they were also torched out of there. And so we talk about people who really stood for something against the odds. And my grandmother was a continuity, like Amy Jacques Garvey was a continuity, you know, like your mom was a continuity. I mean, we, we really, as human beings, come from such foundational value, but we're distracted by the noise in the distractions that you referenced in the early part of the interview. There's just so much coming at us that you don't realize that most of us actually have a gift in our presence and it might be under your roof. Well, I, I wanna thank you again. It's obvious the warmth that he felt and feels towards you. And that's what brought him to uh, the Corner Table Talk uh, show today. So I, I wanna thank you for that. And uh, it really was a pleasure and an honor to spend time with him and, and you, of course, as always. Well, thank you. It was wonderful to watch the two of you, my brother. Ambassador Shabazz. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.